Hi, I'm Marion Peters, um, and I'm going to talk to you about what you need to know about the liver, even if you don't want to. Um, diagnosing cirrhosis, assessing for liver fibrosis, complications, and how to manage them. In case you, the answer to number four is referred to somebody else. So when you think about the natural history of end-stage liver disease, no matter what the cause of chronic liver disease, with increasing fibrosis, you end up, see if I can do this. Ooh, done. Okay. With increasing fibrosis, you can end up with cirrhosis, and then you can decompensate with any of these, hem variceal hemorrhagocytes encephalopathy, or the development of HCC can lead to decompensation. And that occurs at the rate of about 5 to 7% a year. And then, of course, you can die either from HCC or end-stage liver. And I think this is an old but important slide looking at HIV positive in yellow and HIV negative hepatitis C patients in green. And you can see after the very first decompensation, which can be just a touch of ascites, which we say, don't worry. Well, 74% of people are around after one year, and just nearly half if they're HIV co-infected. And at five years, half of the patients have died, and three quarters of the HIV patients. So I think the message is when you have a first decompensation, you have to think about, is the patient a transplant candidate, and should I be referring them? because that's the time to be thinking about transplant, because there may be many issues that the patient or the family has that has to be dealt with before they could become a candidate. So how do you know if your patient has cirrhosis, whether it's compensated or decompensated? So this is the first question. Cirrhosis can be diagnosed by liver tests. Cirrhosis can be diagnosed by transient elastography. Cirrhosis can be diagnosed by model for end-stage liver or by CPT, and you have to say which one is true. Please vote. Right now. Don't wait. Go for gold. Even if it's wrong, who cares? It'll give me something to talk about. We're choosing the true one. All right, that's all who's going to vote. So, the majority of you chose transient elastography, which is correct. 50% of patients with compensated cirrhosis have normal LFTs. So it's not a great way to diagnose it. And MELD and CPT don't diagnose cirrhosis. If you have cirrhosis, they're a great way of prognosticating survival and decompensation. But they don't diagnose it. So I'm going to get to MELD and we'll talk about it. But if you have acute liver failure, your MELD will be very high, but you don't have cirrhosis. So is that clear to everyone? 
Oh, my God, I've done it again. I apologize. So which one is true? And I read it again this morning. No, no, no. It's my, I apologize to everybody. It's the, uh, it's the question is, which one is true? I knew I couldn't do it. I apologize. So the only one that's true is this one. So I apologize for that error. So here, anybody can diagnose end-stage liver. Massive ascites, uh, alti hernia, uh, caput medusa, bright yellow, teal, uh, uh, deposits of uh, cholesterol, spider nevi, palmar erythema, and varices. But what we're really talking about is not that patient, but the patient who normally walks in to see you who looks fine. And on exam, you can have spider nevi, which are usually on the shoulders. You have to take, get the patient to take their shirt off. You can't just look because you don't see them. They have to take your shirt off to see the spider nevi, sometimes splenomegaly. 50% of labs are normal in child's A. One clue is the AST may be greater than the ALT. So with hepatitis C and with fatty liver, the ALT is usually higher than the AST. Remember, with alcohol, the AST is higher than the ALT. But as you develop cirrhosis, it switches. Synthetic dysfunction occurs with more severe liver disease. With portal hypertension, you see thrombocytopenia, leukopenia, and anemia but you don't see that if the patient has cirrhosis without portal hypertension. And as they have worsening liver disease, they can have renal dysfunction and hyponatremia. Ultrasound is a lousy way to diagnose cirrhosis if you don't have portal hypertension. We recently published that 20% of patients where the ultrasound said cirrhosis, actually there was F0 to 2. And even if you put in F3 and 4, it only was positive by biopsy. This is ultrasound on the same day as biopsy. So ultrasound is only really good when you see varices, splenomegaly, ascites, a really nodular liver. And oftentimes, the ultrasonographer will say, cirrhosis because they see chronic hepatitis C or chronic hepatitis B. But it's not really good in the absence of portal hypertension. But hidden clues, ascites, varices, portal vein thrombosis, or splenomegaly. So once you have cirrhosis, then CPT is a great way of prognosticating decompensation. And it consists of the presence or absence of encephalopathy, ascites, bilirubin, either normal or high, greater than three. You get one, two, three points. Albumin, normal or low. Prothrombin time or INR, less than 1.7, greater than 2.3. And then you get, add up your points. Charles A is someone who, in whom the patient, everything is normal. Child C is the lemon on a stick that I showed you at the beginning. And the difficult one is to remember child B. So the patient can look 
perfectly fine sitting in front of you without ascites, not jaundiced, not encephalopathic, but they could have a mildly elevated bilirubin. Remember, you can't see bilirubin under three. Albumin may be low, and the protime may be slightly elevated. So this is the one you need to be adding up the points on your computer. The CPT has taken over from MILD now to use for liver transplant, and it prognosticates the three-month mortality. It's used for who gets the next liver. So the higher the MILD, the more likely the patient is to get a liver transplant. It's also used for survival after a TIPS procedure. So if your Oh, this is the CPT. This is the mortality based on Charles Pugh Turcot. And basically, if you have terrible disease, you have very high three-month mortality. But it's not as sensitive as MELD and liver transplant. And it's the most important single value to be used. It's easy to calculate. If a patient has a MELD of 15 or greater, they would benefit from liver transplant, and they patients should be re referred for liver transplant. And I think it's important to uh, calculate the MELD in your patients who have cirrhosis. So the MELD uses INR, bilirubin, and creatinine in an impossible calculation. So you just do it on the computer. And here's the three-month survival. And you can see that it. Unlike the CPT score, it sort of spreads out a little better. Milled up to 15, you survive just as well without a transplant. So unless you have a complication such as hepatocellular carcinoma, um, hepatopulmonary syndrome, um, massive ascites, or severe encephalopathy with a low meld, for these things you'd get exception points. You really don't consider transplant till the MELD is over 15. And if your MELD is 40, the patient's in the hospital. And if they don't get a transplant within days, they will die. So how do we assess cirrhosis? We talked a little bit about labs being not very helpful. Radiologic looking for evidence of portal hypertension. Transient elastography is an excellent way to do it. As, you sh as uh, Mike showed you, it goes from 2.5, the score, to 75. So cirrhosis for hep C is 12.5. Cirrhosis for most diseases is 14. We haven't changed the 12.5 because it's good to get approval for our drugs. So we just leave it there. It's probably a little underscored. But you can see you can have a touch of cirrhosis all the way up to 75. So it's a huge range, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Non-invasive markers are sort of 80% good at predicting cirrhosis with an APRI over 1.5 or a FIB4 over 3.25. And if none of these things tell you the patient has cirrhosis, only then do you look at a liver biopsy. And to go to your point, we almost never do a liver biopsy for hep C. We may do a biopsy if we're worried they have another disease. If, they think, if we think from the studies they have something else going on, you may do a biopsy for that reason. 
So let's see if I got this one right. The prevalence of varices is low in cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is the commonest cause of ascites in hospitalized patients. Spontaneous bacterial peritonitis is usually symptomatic, and patients with hepatic encephalopathy should restrict protein intake. One of these is true. I got it right. One is true. Please choose the true one. Go for gold. Come on, guys. We're in close. You gotta choose. We gotta get to 20. Didn't work? It's not working. All right. Who who thinks it's number one? Who thinks it's number two? Who thinks it's number three? Who thinks it's number four? All right. Okay. So, oh, I can go back. It's number two. So let me show you the data. Cirrhosis. The prevalence of varices in cirrhotic patients is 35 to 80%, which is really quite high. And, once, and about a quarter to a half of them bleed. Once you bleed, you either die or survive. And if you survive, you re-bleed very frequently. So it's not a good outcome. We need to know if a patient has cirrhosis, has um, cirrhosis, so we can do an endoscopy to see if they have varices. If they have no varices, you repeat it in a year. If they're decompensated in one in three years, if they're decompensated, you repeat in one year. If they have small varices, put them on non-selective beta blockers. If they have medium or large, put them on beta blockers and ban them. And the plenty of data for this. And here's the esophageal varices, and here are the worms of gastric varices. But you can use fibrous scan to exclude patients who don't need endoscopy. So in with this is survival um, free of any complications, looking at wedge venous pressure measurements. So going through the vein, through the IVC, up through the hepatic vein, and measuring the pressure, the portal pressure, either with a free, using a free and a wedged hepatic vein. And if it's normal, almost no decomp. But if it's greater than 10, you can see within two years, over half the patients have been compensated. And this looks like the same slide. Survival free of decompensation, and this is with liver stiffness from fibroscan. So the guidelines now say if your liver stiffness is under 20, there are four studies, 19, 20, 21, and 22. So they chose 20. If your liver stiffness is under 20 and you have a normal platelet count that is greater than 150, the patient doesn't need an EGD. So this is very helpful 
I don't know how many of you have access to Fibroscan. Very few. So it's actually very helpful if you have access to it, and the patients are so happy because they don't particularly want an endoscopy. But if you don't have access and a patient has cirrhosis, you need to do an EGD. So ascites is the most common complication of cirrhosis, and it's the most common decompensation after surgery in a patient with child's A cirrhosis. So you take a normal patient and you give them the stress of surgery, the chance of decompensating is 10 to 30 percent. The chance of dying is 2x the surgery. So if they're getting a colon resection, bad, because you're in the belly doing messy stuff and the chance is 30 percent of decompensating. If they're having brain surgery, it's much lower, probably about 10 percent. So we always tell the anesthesiologist, don't give them a liter or two of Bringer's lactate before you get them to the OR. Give them albumin or blood. So once patients get ascites, 15% die within a year, 44% in five years, and 85% of hospitalized patients with ascites have been shown to the cause is cirrhosis. So it's common, and I'm not going to go through all the stages, but you have it in your handout. So you start off with diuretic responsive. You do 20 or 40 of ferrosamide to 50 or 75 of spironolactone. And you adjust according to the sodium and the potassium because Lasix drops the potassium and spironolactone increases it. Then as it gets worse, you get refractory ascites, worse hyponatremia, worse hepatorenal. So each is a worsening stage of a deranged circulatory state. All patients with new onset ascites should have a diagnostic paracentesis. You don't need to give them FFP and platelets. There's very small risk of bleeding. And the first line therapy is um, sodium restriction if they have, um, here I have down here, spironolactone and ferrosamide. We don't use bu uh, uh, bumetanide early on as first line. You titrate, you can go up to 400 of spironolactone and 160 of ferrosamide. So you can really pour in quite a lot of diuretic as long as you don't give them renal failure. Once they start getting renal failure, you have to back off. And what are your choices? Large volume paracentesis or TIPS or liver transplant. SBP is the most common bacterial infection in hospitalized cirrhotic patients. The majority of patients don't have fever, abdominal pain, tenderness, or leukocytosis. The most common presentation of SBP is unexplained encephalopathy, worsening renal failure. So you can't use clinical signs of infection. You have to tap, as you all know, poly count greater than 250 or a total white count greater than 500. You immediately start antibiotics. You don't wait for culture. And you have to put the ascites in blood culture bottles because if you just send it in the black tube, 50% are positive. If you put them in blood culture bottles, 85% are positive. 
and you give cephalosporins first line, renal function's the main reason patients die, and the um, Barcelona group, group showed very carefully, beautifully, that you give the patient intravenous albumin if they have a high bilirubin, creatinine, or BUN, and that really improves the survival. Present, prevent recurrence with antibiotics, and we move from one to the other as we develop resistance, and give primary prophylaxis if they have an elevated MELD, and if they have a lower MELD in patients with HIV. Hepatorenal, um, I'm not going to go into because I don't have enough time, but it tells you all about it in, the, in uh, my handout. Type 1 is the rapidly progressive you see with um, alcoholic hepatitis. These patients will not survive a month if they develop hepatorenal. More commonly in your outpatients, you see type 2, which is more slowly progressive. A serum creatinine, not very high. Remember, these patients usually have very low creatinines. They have usually low muscle mass. So if their creatinine clearance drops or urine sodium greater than 10, this is associated with ascites that's unresponsive to diuretics. And these patients usually don't survive six months. That's their median survival. So they need to be evaluated for transplant. Hepatic encephalopathy. This is shunting and failure to metabolize neurotoxic substances. We call it ammonia, but it's probably something else. But it, ammonia does not correlate well with stage. And these are the causes of hepatic encephalopathy, GI bleeding, infection, uh, shunting with the tips, sedatives, most commonly narcotics or sedatives can induce it, too much diuretics, but not excess protein. In 40 years, I've had two patients who had encephalopathy with excess protein. One, the wife wanted him to build up his muscle, so she gave him three steaks a day, and he got encephalopathy, but that's pretty uncommon. And the treatment is aimed to reduce production of pneumonia from the colon, either non-absorbable disaccharides, and we mostly use lactulose, or androfaximin. Protein restriction actually promotes protein degradation. So it worsens the nutritional status and decreases muscle mass. You should not use protein restriction. You can't get a protein uh, over 40 grams a day if you're an inpatient. So you don't have to worry if they're an inpatient, but out, don't restrict their protein. And this induces diarrhea as well as changing the gut bugs from protein making to glucose and rifaximin is an excellent non-absorbable. We don't use neonamycin anymore. And there's a very poor correlation between ammonia and encephalopathy, and I've never sent an ammonia. We only use it for fulminant hepatic failure. Hepatocellular carcinoma is a very important late complication um, of end-stage liver, except hepatitis B patients, remember, 20% of them can develop cancer in the absence of cirrhosis. All other diseases, it's associated with cirrhosis. You can diagnose it by ultrasound, CT, or MRI. 
Alpha feta protein, a third of the time patients have cancer without alpha feta protein elevation. And a third of the time patients have elevated alpha feta protein without cancer, especially in hepatitis C. And all these, all these are in your handout, so you don't have to worry. So all patients with cirrhosis need to be screened with six-monthly alpha feta protein and six-monthly imaging. The imaging we use is ultrasound. Ultrasound is very good at picking up a lesion. It's not good at telling us the lesion is cancer. But it's easier for the patient. It doesn't come with um, radiation risk, and it's not expensive. But if you find a lesion, then you have to go and do either a CT or an MRI. There's no benefit to doing it more than every six months. And alpha feta protein is added on, with the caveat that you can have a cancer with a normal alpha feta protein. But if you've been monitoring the patient, the alpha feta protein suddenly goes up to 200, you'd look carefully for cancer then. And we use cross-sectional imaging in alpha feta protein. And here's the cross-sectional imaging. The thing about a cancer is that the vast majority are fed by the hepatic artery. So they light up in the arterial phase and then wash out in the portal venous phase. And this is pathognomonic of HCC. You don't need to do a biopsy. The risk of biopsy is a needle tract implant, which would make the patient not a transplant candidate because they'd have cancer outside the liver. So we don't do biopsies unless we cannot tell whether it's a cancer or not, which occurs maybe 2% of the time. So this is a hypervascular lesion that washes out on the portal venous phase. How do, we have multiple ways of treating resection, local regional therapy with transarterial chemoembolization or radiofrequency ablation or ethanol ablation, liver transplantation, and if they have disseminated disease, multiple systemic therapy are either available or coming available in research. So we see patients up to here, and then we refer them to oncology for systemic therapy if they have extrahepatic disease. And patients who are undergoing live, uh, who are being evaluated for liver transplant, we will do local regional therapy prior to extend their chance of getting to transplant, still a transplant candidate. And resection is only done in patients without portal hypertension, that is, platelets over 150. No, I know I'm not. I'm saying we can't do a transplant if they have cancer outside the liver because the immunosuppression for the transplant will make the cancer grow. The risk of needle biopsy is an implant in the needle tract, which is reported between 2 and 6%. So if you get cancer in the needle tract, in the skin or subcutaneously, then you are no longer a transplant candidate. What I'm saying is you don't need a biopsy 
to prove it's cancer, except in a tiny percent. Then you have to tell the patient the risk is you may, if we biopsy it and you get it's cancer and you get cancer somewhere else, you're not a candidate. And we do this as local regional therapy to extend time to transplant, but also if patients aren't candidates, we will still do this, including radioembolization with ipsy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So screen all patients with ultrasound alpha-fetoprotein if they have cirrhosis. Usually radiographic diagnosis is sufficient. And treatment, curative ablation resection or transplant, or palliative taste or serafinib. In to finally end, remember that five, five to seven percent of child's acerotics decompensate every year. So it's not a rare event. You diagnose, diagnosis of child's A, even B, may be subtle. You need to screen for HCC, perform endoscopy. If you have a fibro scan, you may be able to avoid endoscopy in people whose fibro scan is under 20 with normal platelets. Closely monitor on therapy, and HCC with child's B can be treated using transplant as a backup. And that's it. Thank you. I don't know if there's any questions or we've worn you out. Yes. with cirrhosis who's cleared their infection and will still show signs of progression despite the fact we're clearing hepatitis C? Yes, there is, and I'm going to talk about that this afternoon, but it's around 2 to 3% that will progress with cirrhosis. It's much lower than people who still have hep C, but it doesn't go away. <coughs> yes. So one thing I realized um, as I watched your talk and... Uh, I prepared one of the uh, pre-test questions that involves other manifestations of liver dysfunction that are not cirrhosis. So things like porphyria cutanea tarda or cryoglobulinemia, that type of thing. Can you spend a minute or two just kind of talking about those disorders and what happens when you treat hepatitis C? Yeah. So I had a whole talk on extrahepatic manifestations that don't fit into 30 minutes. Right. But so like um, three or four minutes. So if that? somebody has uh, PCT, most commonly it's due to hep C, and treatment will reverse the porphyria cutanea tarda. If they have iron overload, which is also frequent, you have to do phlebotomy as well. You know, when we used interferon, it did both, but we don't have that anymore. Cryoglobulins, nice studies of cryoglobulinemia where about 80% of people after cure of hepatitis C, their cryoglobulins decrease. And some of the patients who even are on dialysis, they rescued some of the patients from dialysis, but not all. So if a patient has cryoglobulin with um, uh, renal disease, they may it's always worth treating them, but it's not 100% cure. If they have the skin manifestations, it's always, always reversed. If they have the neurologic, it's less so. Um, patients who have lichen planus, that's reversed with cure of hepatitis C. Patients who have kidney disease not associated with cryoglobulins can also be improved. Patients who have, what other uh, extrahepatic manifestations? 
have I not thought about? Help me, everyone. I can't think of any others. Yes. Yeah. Any patient with a stage four or above. Oh, any patient with a stage four. Hold or it up so people can hear you. Any patient with a stage four or above um, CKD that we get them evaluated for transplant prior to treating, with the hope that they'll get the renal transplant more easy, especially here in New York. I'm sure it's the same get a in a lot of states. Kidney. Um, and yeah. then treat them. So for patients with cryolaminemia with stage four or five, would you treat and maybe? See if we. I, I mean, think what do you do? Are you talking about that this morning? Not about cryoglobulinemia. Okay. I guess he's saying if you know if you could cure their kidney disease and they didn't need a transplant, I think I'd have to have a serious conversation with. Yeah, the because it's not a hundred. It's not a hundred percent cure. That's the problem. So if you have someone who's got really bad right. cryoglobulinemia, right. you have to cure the cryoglobulinemia, right? If you give a renal transplant, it'll come back in the next. So I would say I would treat them, yeah. we, we but then the problem is they don't get HCV-positive kidney, which yeah. is so much easier to get than an HCV-negative. It's like years of difference. So we have this, uh, locally, we have this dynamic relationship between our kidney transplant team and, and our liver clinic, and uh, it's a decision each time about, you know, playing the odds about a HCV-positive liver. But in general, it's a good idea to treat them, but the reason not to would be to wait for their HCV positive kidney and then treat. Because if they only had kidney disease, right. you could say, let's get them to transplant and treat them the first week, which is only three, you know, eight weeks, 12 weeks, and then it's done. But say they have multi-organ disease, which might affect immunosuppression from the cryoglobulins, then you might, you, there's no right answer. And if they had a donor, that would be perfect because you treat them and then donate the kidney if they needed it. Question in front here. Hi, thank you. Um, I would like to know if you could comment on the sensitivity and specificity of uh, fibro tests, the um, commonly used laboratory assays versus fiber scan and how they compare. So fibro test is similar to Fib4 and APRI. It's nowhere near as sensitive as fibro scan, and therefore I never use it. But even before we had a fibro scan, I wouldn't use it because Fib4 and APRI are free. And they're 80% good at telling you cirrhosis or F0. They're pretty bad at telling you F2, F3. So they're really the extremes. And FibroTest, which uses ALT, GGT, bilirubin, apolipoproteinemia, three of which tests change with inflammation. So it doesn't really tell you fibrosis. Now, there's a score called the ELF score, enhanced liver fibrosis, which uses three measures of procollagen, hyaluronic acid, TIMP, Three, which are TIMP3, TIMP1. Can't answer. Sorry. Uh, but they three are direct measures of liver fibrosis. And therefore, that's a much more sensitive test. And that's about 85 to 90% successful. And it, 
the studies show it's almost as good as a fibro scan. But fibro test is giving money without getting a great outcome. So I don't use it. I think it also has beta-2 microglobulin. Micro, yeah. Micro, yeah. And for an HIV who were working in the late 80s, that was something we used to measure and didn't know quite what to do with when it came back. So it so uses too out. many measures of inflammation rather than fibrosis. So it's in, we think of aprifibro for fiber test, fiber sure, as all as um, indirect measures of fibrosis, whereas the ELF is a direct measure of fibrosis. But it is also cost money. For some reason, though, some payers require a fibrosure or a fibro scan and won't let you use a free, so I'll use it. Uh, and I had one more, um, which I've always wondered. Uh, I've had several patients who've had TACE and, and needed uh, frequent or uh, multiple TACEs. What is the what does the survival look like with taste? And so taste isn't curative, um, uh, whereas the data for RS. You may want to describe what that is. Uh, trans uh, trans arterial chemoembolization. So you thread thread the catheter into the hepatic artery up to the tumor and inject. Uh, usually with lipidol, so you can see where you were, the chemotherapy, and then put a bit of glue in it so it stays there, which it does most of the time. Um, and sometimes it's very direct and just hits the spot. Sometimes it leaks out to hit other spots. It always gives you damage around the cancer, which you, uh, ALT and AST goes up. Sometimes if it's near the gallbladder, you can get gallbladder damage, so it's not perfect. But they can only give so much at a time, so if you have a four centimeter or five centimeter lesion, you may need multiple cases. And depending on the biology of the tumor, if the tumor is very aggressive, it may grow somewhere else because the liver is cirrhotic or it, you may not get all the tumor and it comes back. So usually we do a taste, we repeat the CT at one month. If there's more tumor not treated, we retaste, repeat it one month. If the tumor shows that there's no visible tumor, remember there may be microscopic tumor, we repeat it three months. So your experience of having patients having multiple tastes is common. And it's not curative. It's really just pal uh, what's the word? Not is it palliative to get you to transplant? But I've had patients who had tases eight, nine years ago and are still coming to visit me. So in some patients, especially in older patients, they tend to have less aggressive disease. Yes. STR? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Okay. So maybe we'll save that for later because it's a great question. <laughs> great. Thank you. Maybe we can finish with one story that I'd like to tell. That um, we, we talk about liver biopsies. We don't do much anymore. Um, in fact, I may have done one when I was a resident. You guys may have as well. But um, the, the, uh, we always think about bleeding as the number one 
problem, but there's other problems like if you hit the gallbladder. Can you tell this great story about your approach to this where you turn your back for about a minute? No, when you hit the gallbladder, you can all, now we do ultrasound before we do any biopsy so we know where the gallbladder is so we don't go there. Because we used to just do percussion and every now and then you'd hit the gallbladder. You do the biopsy, everything's fine, biopsy looks fine, the nothing coming out in the needle, the patient is great. You turn around and you start to prepare it to put it in the formalin. 30 seconds goes by and the patient says, oh doctor. <laughs> and that's the worst oh doctor because that is when the bile has hit the peritoneum. And then the next two hours are ugly. So Usually not fatal, but yeah, the very pain-inducing. So it's called the 30-second O-doctor wait sign. And uh, yeah, just thought it was nice that you shared that. Thank you. Okay, so we'll take about a 15-minute break. We'll come back about uh, 1045.